know, I have said this before, that the church today does not lack an emphasis on being practical. We love practical. We love application. And we should love that. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. Because if by practical, if by practical one means authentic life change and transformation, if by practical one means greater holiness and conformity to Jesus Christ, then exactly, exactly, that's essential. That, that's non-negotiable. And if we truly belong to Jesus Christ, that is also inevitable. Let it be said, we need, we need hands-on, user-friendly, real-world, how-to, practical application for the trenches of life. We are salt, we are light, we are branches that bear fruit. No one denies that. No one disputes that. What is disputed, however, is what qualifies as practical. You see, I fear for the church, beloved. I am burdened that many today in the church have grown a little too pragmatic in their expectations. That we've turned into a bunch of how-to junkies that need our teaching pre-chewed, bite-sized, covered in candy, and shrink-wrapped. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that I think the time has come for us to reset our criteria of what we think is practical. Because my question is, get this now, my question is, what if practical was getting your soul clobbered by the blazing glory of God in the beauty of his holiness? What if the essence of practical was to behold God in the white-hot holiness of his radiant being? To be staggered by all that God is in his towering, uncreated majesty? What if the most practical power for our lives and the most healthy medication for the soul was to encounter the matchless supremacy of God in the pages of Scripture. What if that were the case? Because you understand, if that is practical, if that is practical, then Isaiah chapter 40 is the most practical chapter in the Bible. Because what it delivers is the most devastating glimpse of the majesty of God found anywhere in Scripture. And why that is practical, mind you, is because when we see the glory of God in the beauty of his holiness, well, it just puts all things in their proper perspective. You remember the quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question, he says before the church, is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. Thus, the man who comes to a right belief about God, here's the practical, 
is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems for he sees that these have to do with matters that at most cannot concern him for very long. He's exactly right. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. You come to a right belief about God, all things, all things are then put in their proper perspective. And you understand the people to whom Isaiah was writing needed some proper perspective, didn't they? From their point of view, things looked bleak and crushing and hopeless and irreversible. And if man was the supreme power in the world... And if all things were just this nightmare of random confusion, well then, yes, by all means, things would be hopeless. But man is not supreme. And there is nothing random. Because at the center of all things, and the source of all things, and the cause of all things, and the ruler of all things is a sovereign, invincible God who governs everything that comes to pass. See, that's practical. That's perspective. And Isaiah's audience really needed perspective because, again, the thing about his audience, listen carefully, is that his audience were not yet even a people in existence yet. They weren't even born yet. At least not the people he's addressing in chapters 40 through 66. Because get this, in these chapters, Isaiah makes really clear that he is not addressing the people of his own day, but a generation of Jews yet to be born. And who those people were and where those people were was 120 years in the future, 2,000 miles away in captivity in Babylon. In chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is talking to them, which is just incredible which is just astonishing because that means that in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is comforting a people in the middle of an exile that hadn't even happened yet. And what he gives them to comfort them is theology. And not even just theology, but a kind of theology so staggering in its vision of God and so staggering in its vision of the future and so staggering in its vision of the Messiah that should our greatest fears come upon us, our faith remains profoundly unshaken. And chapter 40, you just have to understand, a chapter 40 in Isaiah is so critical, so critical to the rest of the book. You got to get this. The reason why it's so critical is because in this chapter, Isaiah provides, get this, the foundational reason and basis for why the future plan of God will be fulfilled. It's the foundational basis for why the plan of God will be fulfilled. And the foundational basis that the plan of God will be fulfilled, get this, is his own infinite perfections. In other words, the proof that God will fulfill his plan is God himself. All that God is in his sovereign, limitless perfections and uncreated majesty is the guarantee that everything he has planned will be fulfilled. Do you see? In other words, 
the supremacy of God is the certainty for the future. That's chapter 40. That's perspective. If you need perspective this morning, if you need assurance and hope and courage and joy and perseverance in your faith, and you definitely do need those things, then you must begin with the blazing glory of God in the beauty of his holiness. And so, here we go. As we're going this morning and next week, I want you to see six realms. Six realms of Yahweh's supremacy that supply the soul with comfort in an age of danger and fear. That's where we're going. Six realms of Yahweh's supremacy that supply the soul with comfort in an age of danger and fear. Realm number one. Realm number one, Yahweh is supreme over creation. Yahweh is supreme over creation, which makes sense since he made it. The one who created all things gets to rule all things, right? And yet let's not forget what came before this chapter. Do you remember the chapter 39 ends with a prediction of exile, right? Remember that? The Babylonians would come, invade the land, torch the cities, murder thousands, demolish Jerusalem, and take the people captive as slaves. And 120 years later, in 586 B.C., that is exactly what happened. And those, those are the people to whom Isaiah is writing in chapters 40 through 66. And, and yet the question is, what do you say to those people? What do, you, what do you say to a people of faded hope and grim despair? What you say to them is chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort, oh my people. Be comforted. Take comfort, oh my people. That's what you say. And what's astonishing about that is that this is not Isaiah. This is God speaking offering comfort to his very people who slid down the slippery slope of sin and idolatry. It's astonishing. And yet you see verses 2 through 11, which we saw last week, 2 through 11, are all the things that God is going to do in the future to bring them comfort. It's called eschatology. But God has planned for the end of the age. And so, do you know then what verses 12 through 31 are? Do you know what these verses are? They are the theological proof and guarantee that everything God promised to do in chapters in verses 2 through 11 will actually come to pass. That's why they're there. God made lofty promises of what he would do in the future. 12 through 31 are the theological guarantee and evidence and basis and proof that those things can and will be fulfilled. And the evidence and the basis and the guarantee that those things will be fulfilled is the supremacy of God himself. And Yahweh is supreme over creation. Look at verses 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And who has measured the heavens with the span? And who has calculated the dust of the earth with a measure and weighed the mountains and the balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed or measured the spirit of Yahweh and as his counselor who has informed him? 
Who consulted him? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and the way of understanding? Who has made known to him? That's incredible. And you see what Isaiah is doing, right? Rather than merely state his propositions and declare his theology, he instead interrogates them, questions them, grills them, drills them, and even in a sense catechizes them as a way to get them to remember what they already know to be true. You see, Isaiah knows they already know the answers to the questions, but the whole point of the exercise is to reinforce their weak and brittle faith with unbendable theological steel, because that is practical. And notice, notice that every single one of those questions, they are rhetorical. Rhetorical meaning that the answer is obvious. There's 10 questions there, and every single answer is exactly the same. God alone and no one but God. And I know that you already know the answers to the questions, but for the good of our own souls, we're going to look at every single one of them. Question number one, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Answer, God alone and no one but God. And yet, what's the nature of the question? Because by water, what does Isaiah mean? He means the bodies of water that are on the earth, doesn't he? Oceans and seas, and rivers, and lakes, and streams, and creeks, and ponds, all of that is contained, as it were, in the palm of God's hand, which, by the way, is 70-ish percent water. That's 332 million cubic miles of water, which adds up to 352 quintillion gallons. That's a 352 with 18 zeros after it. Pacific Ocean alone is 63 million square miles. The Mariana Trench at its deepest point is 36,000 feet down at the bottom of the Pacific. And all of it God measures and holds in the palm of his hand, which is funny because he doesn't have palms. Nor a giant palm by which he literally measures the volume of the earth's water. What's the point? The point is, the seas and the oceans of the world, massive and dangerous and not able to be tamed by us, are ruled with ease by the greatness of God's power. And this supremacy over the seas was most clearly seen, wasn't it? Not only in the parting of the Red Seas when God divided the water, but on the Sea of Galilee, right? When Jesus Christ merely spoke words and calmed a hurricane with his voice and all the men in the boat could say is, who is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him? Good question. Number two. Number two, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with the span? Span meaning, get this, with your hand. Meaning, who has stretched out their fingers with their hand and measured the extent and breadth of the cosmos? Who has done that? Answer, God alone and no one but God. Because that's what Isaiah means by the heavens. He means the endless stretches of space. 
You remember, don't you, the sun is a mere 93 million miles away. The closest planet to Earth is a mere 25 million miles away. Pluto is 4.67 billion miles away. Let's take a poll. Who believes that Pluto is a planet? Who believes that Pluto is a moon? Who doesn't care? The next closest star, other than the sun, is 29 trillion miles away. If we hopped on board the Discovery shuttle, which goes five miles a second, it would take us 37,000 years to go one light year. Just one. Because one light year, by the way, is 5.8 trillion miles. One light year, 5.8 trillion miles. The best we can tell, nobody knows. The best we can tell is that the universe is 83 billion light years across. 5.8 trillion times 83 billion. I don't even know what that means. But God does. Because he stretched out his fingers and measured it with his hand. Not that he has a hand, nor does he have to measure anything because he has infinite intuitive knowledge of everything forever anyway. But the point is the endless stretches of space that NASA will never, ever see belong to him. Worlds without end, galaxies without number, stars without limit, beauty without measure. There is not one square inch in all the universe where the triune God doesn't say, this is mine, and I rule it, and I am sovereign over it. Questions three and four, a package deal. Verse 12 again, who, who has calculated the dust of the earth with a measure? And weighed the mountains and the balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Good questions. And God alone, no one but God, is the answer. And you notice the pattern, don't you? We, we started at the sea. We went up into space. We come down to the dirt. We go up again to the mountains. The point is the Yahweh, the supremacy of Yahweh is all-inclusive. Everything is contained. Nothing is left out. No exceptions to the rule. All of it is in his jurisdiction. And I love Isaiah's vivid language here, don't you? The picture of billions of cubic tons of dirt and soil and sand easily fitting onto one of God's scales. And then the mountains. The mountains, just Mount Everest alone is 350 trillion pounds. Add to that the Himalayas, the Rockies, the Andes, the Appalachians, and you're talking billions and billions and trillions and trillions of cubic tons of earth and rock, and we rightly stand in awe of these things as obvious displays of God's power. But Isaiah says, all of that fits on a tiny scale in the palace of Yahweh, as it were. And the point is profound, isn't it? God doesn't have scales. He doesn't have a balance. 
He doesn't have a giant machine by which he literally measures the, the, the mountains of the earth, nor does he have to measure anything since his infinite knowledge is infinite and intuitive and, and immediate and, 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 and instantaneous. The point is the towering mountains and the peaks that rightly take our breath away, of which we stand in awe in silent admiration are but a sample and an example of the God who made them. Do you see? This is the your God of verses 1 and 9. Comfort says your God. Well, who is your God? This is your God. Tell me, beloved, what dilemma in your life can this God not overcome? What opposition can this God not crush? What challenge in the world or in your life can this God not conquer with ease? What sin can he not, can this God not supply the power for you to slaughter with holy violence? Do you see? This is the God whose very own perfections are the guarantee that everything he has planned will come to pass. Don't you see? God needs nothing to be God or to do what God does. These are the thoughts that must fill our minds. Because what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Question 5, verse 13, who? There it is again, rhetorical question. The answer of which is obvious. Who directs the spirit of Yahweh? Answer God alone and no one but God. And here the gear shifts from what God has made to who God is. And here we see the, the spirit of Yahweh. See, that's it's the spirit. Not a buzz to be felt, but the third person of the Trinity to be worshipped and adored. And the question is, who directs the spirit of Yahweh? Literally, who has measured him? It's the same word in verse 12. Who has measured the heavens with the span? And the point is, if you can't even figure out the cosmos in the endless stretches of space, what on earth makes you think that you can get to the bottom of God? Job chapter 11, who has measured God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And the spirit in particular is the agent of God's power. That's his role. The, ones who, the one who brings into being, into reality, all of that which God has ordained. And the question is, who has the power to control the spirit? To funnel the spirit's power? To compel the spirit to do something that the father has not decreed? You understand, the spirit of Yahweh is free. Sovereign independent, and does what only the Father has ordained. We don't conjure the Spirit like a magical force. We don't wrangle or channel Him like electricity. He will not be manipulated or degraded as anything less than fully God because the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. And He obeys the Father and the Son. And believe it or not, questions 6 through 10 all concern God's knowledge, which is infinite and inexhaustible. 
Look at verses 13 and 14. Who, who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? Here it is. And as his counselor, who has informed him? Who advised him? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and the way of understanding? Who has made known to him? You better have one answer to those questions or you are a blasphemer. No one is the answer. No one ever in the history of the universe, neither man nor angel, has taught God, counseled God, corrected God, instructed God, made known to the Almighty anything that he didn't already know for all eternity. And the reason why, the reason why is because Yahweh contains in his own perfections absolute perfection, including infinite, exhaustive knowledge of everything forever, including the future. And he knows it all because he ordained it. And so think about it, the king of Babylon, Alexander the Great, Hitler, and Xi Jinping, and countless other delusional fools wander on history thinking that they are doing something profound, having zero idea that their names and their deeds have already been decreed. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense why, God's, why Isaiah spends half of his 10 questions talking about the knowledge of God, right? It makes total sense. Because if you were living in the hellhole of Babylon, you too would be tempted to doubt. Does God really know what he's doing? Is this really the best idea for his plan? Is sin and evil in the world really the best plan that God could come up with? Does my suffering and my pain, does this really help things? Does this really bring God glory? Did, does, does, did God miss something? Does he not know the future? Is he like us, limited in perception and knowledge? I mean, you could imagine the doubts and the fears. And you can tell in verse 14 that these future people would be tempted to think that God is unfair and, and unjust in sending them to Babylon, at least for as long as he did. That perhaps God needed some lessons on justice on how to be merciful and compassionate, that he needed a master class on how to run a, a master plan for human history, and Isaiah just wants them to know that that's not only illogical, that is theologically insane. You see, there are some thoughts about God that you don't get to think. There are some thoughts about God that are absolutely and unbendingly forbidden. And God not knowing the future or not caring are among them. I mean, you see this, right? God's own divine perfections are the only real source of the security that you seek. Financial experts say that it's a it's a really good idea to diversify your investments, right? Don't invest your money in only one thing, or put it another way, don't put all your eggs into one basket, but that is exactly what you should do with your hope and faith. Never diversify your faith in anything other than the supremacy of God and his plan in his son revealed in his word. 
Put all of the eggs of your hope into the basket of glory that makes God who he intrinsically is. Henry, Henry Skugel, the Puritan, wrote this. I've got it in your notes. He says, Christianity is not a matter of mere moral behavior or emotional ecstasy. Rather, Christianity, here's his definition of the Christian faith. Christianity is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections which makes the soul resign itself and sacrifice itself wholly unto him and thus ready to do or suffer anything for his sake. That's Christianity. And if the prophet Isaiah were standing right here, he would say, yes, that's exactly what I mean. Realm number two. Realm number two over which Yahweh is supreme. Number two, Yahweh is supreme over the nations. Yahweh is supreme over the nations because if the last three years have proven any of our biblical doctrines as true, it is the doctrine of the depravity of man, right? I mean, the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of man has always been true ever since the fall, but, but given the incessant plotting of terrorists, the conspiring of nations, the plotting for power on the part of world leaders on the national and international scene, one can argue that it has never been more conspicuous than it is at this moment that rebellion, defiance, and a fanatical pursuit of radical self-sovereignty is more prevalent on the planet than ever in history. Think about it. Has there been one week, one week in the last three years where there hasn't been some global scandal or outrage? I mean, we are watching before our very eyes the unraveling of entire civilizations, human race plunging themselves into self-destruction. And what that does is leave us with a feeling of insecurity, doesn't it? Of instability, vulnerability, unpredictability. I mean, what people in the world really want to know is, is there anyone out there in the universe actually in charge? Is there anyone out there in control over this global mosh pit for world domination? Or is all of human history just one giant exercise in violence, chaos, and pandemonium? Good question. And we know the answer. And part of the reason why we do is precisely because of Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 18. Look at the text. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And they were regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands or the coastlands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. All of the nations are like nothing before him. They were regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. Who will you compare God? And what likeness shall you compare to him? You can see it. Isaiah has his foot all the way down on the accelerator of theology, and he refuses to use the brakes because that's practical. And if you look carefully, you can see a pattern there. Notice the verses 15 and 17 are parallel. 
16 and 18 are parallel, and these two pairs interlock together. And verses 15 through 17, 15 and 17, are a picture of what, what the nations are like before God. And what are the nations like before God? Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And they were regarded as a, like a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, like, like, like. Do you hear the comparisons? There are three. One, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, meaning compared to God, they're no big deal. So what? So what? Who cares about the nations? God is the one you have to worry about. The evil nations of the world pose no threat to God or his plan, but he definitely poses a threat to theirs. All their raging, all their rioting, all their protesting and plotting and warring and scheming and threatening will come to nothing in the end. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up as a warrior king, he will, he will re return to build his kingdom. And the little drop that is the unrepentant nations will be wiped up and destroyed by the fires of his wrath. Number two, the hostile nations, with all their nukes, with all their power, they are like a speck of dust on the scales. <laughs> Meaning they are, compared to God, weightless and inconsequential. They literally pose zero threat to his salvation plan unfolding in the world. In fact, they are unwitting and involuntary and unsuspecting participants in his plan. And even when the nations are doing their worst in the world, they are playing right into the sovereign hands of God. They're just a drop. They're just dust. And number three, compared to God, even the islands of the world are nothing more than particles of dust that float in a sunbeam. I mean, you can totally tell, can't you? <laughs> Isaiah is trying to get us to view the world through the eyes of the Almighty. He wants us to watch the news through a very particular theological lens that God's not biting his nails. He's not losing sleep. He's not wringing his hands. He's not downing another scotch. He's not running to the toilet. He's not crossing his fingers or hoping for the best. No, what does Psalm 2 say that he does? You remember? How does God respond to the nation? Say it again. He laughs at them. He mocks them, not because it's cute, but because it's ridiculous to pull a mutiny on the Almighty and think you can get away with it. Notice where Isaiah goes in verse 16. It seems odd and out of place, but it really makes a lot of sense. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, and its animals are not enough for a burnt offering. What is this? But a vivid portrayal of the infinite worth of God. I mean, you can see it, right? The, the sacrificial temple worship language. Can you see that there, sacrificial language? And you know how it works. In the Old Testament, you make a fire. You kill an animal. You burn that animal on the altar. God is worthy of the sacrifice, right? The question is just how worthy is he? Well, if you were to cut down the entire forest of Lebanon or the entire Redwood National Forest, 
And you were to pile all the trees in a massive pile, light those trees on fire, take every single animal from the forest, kill them, and offer them on that altar as a sacrifice to God. It still does no justice to the infinite worth of God. That's the point. It, it does not correspond to his majesty. Nothing we do as mortals could capture the weight of the glory of God. Beloved, with all of our right perspectives of God as our friend and our father, which he is, we must always remember that in terms of his glory, we are but ants. We're just ants at the foot of Mount Everest, gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before us. With all of our efforts to see God as approachable and accessible and friendly and familiar, which he is, we must also remember that this is a God so radiant in his being and so glorious in his majesty that were you to see his face unfiltered in your current condition, it would incinerate you. The sun burn out your eyeballs from 93 million miles away and you think you're going to casually stroll into the presence of the Almighty. That's why he says in verse 17, from God's perspective, all the nations, all the nations are like nothing before him. They were regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. What a statement. And it doesn't mean that God is indifferent or that he doesn't care, or that he, John 3, 16, doesn't love the world. He does. The point is, is that who Yahweh is in his limitless perfections, he's so utterly supreme and so sufficient in himself that it is as if the nations do not even exist. Do you see? That's what he means when he says all the nations are like nothing before him. More than nothing and meaningless, he says. Meaningless. That's very interesting. That word literally has the idea of nothingness. In fact, it's the very same word from Genesis 1 verse 2. Do you remember that? God creates the heavens and the earth, and it says the heavens and the earth were formless and void. Void. Meaning barren, empty, nothing alive. Exact same word here. What's the point? The nations are void before God. Meaning that even with their rioting and their rage and their clamor and their chaos, they change nothing about God's fundamental nature as God. The point is the nations could be here or they could not be here. And it changes nothing about God's supreme delight in being God. Do you see? You see, God is utterly free to be what God is and to do what God does apart from any constraints imposed by his creation. That can't be said about anybody else. Which is why he says what he does in verse 18. Look at the text. And to whom shall you liken God? And what likeness shall you compare to him? You better leave it blank. You better leave it blank. There's no one like God. That's what it means to be God. 
The very godness of God makes him infinitely superior to everything that's not God. And thus, the puny, fragile, tiny nations that God himself created and whose very activities God controls are in one sense as if they did not even exist. I mean, it computes, doesn't it? It totally computes how this could have, should have helped God's people while suffering in Babylon, the, the greatest world power of the day. This should have helped them, comforted them throughout the ages as they got knocked around and passed around from one brutal nation to the other. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Slaughtered, murdered by Muslims, slaughtered by Nazis. And now today, staring down the barrel of a Muslim Middle East. It's exactly the same for us, beloved. It's exactly the same for us. The only thing that truly helps in an age of, of danger and fear is a vision of God, matchless and supreme. Low-calorie dressing on your salad might be a good idea. Low-calorie thoughts about God are a terrible Soft, non-theological cushions of warmth might be okay for a get-well card, but they do not make the soul well. Do you see? Only when we see who God is in the pages of Scripture do we find the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. All the courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a compelling vision of true reality, namely that God decrees everything that comes to pass. We know about the spy balloons. We know about invasions. We know about voter fraud. We know about world leaders implicated by Jeffrey Epstein. We know about wars and rumors of wars, and yet even with the world coming apart at the seams, guess what? You and I, we're going to go home tonight, and we're going to sleep like babies. You know why? Because the sky's not falling, nor is it cracking, but the sky will split one day. When King Jesus returns, and tramples the nations in the winepress of his wrath and then single-handedly ends the reign of terror in the world because that is practical, that is perspective. Realm number three. Realm number three over which God is supreme. Number three, Yahweh is supreme over idols. Yahweh is supreme over idols. Hang in there, beloved. Because at this point, I don't know about you, we could use a bit of a laugh. We could use some comedy relief, a little levity amidst the gravity, right? Because it's funny. It is funny. It's actually hilarious in light of who God is to think about idols and how they're made. It's comedic in a sad and tragic way to, to think about the things that capture our worshiping gaze are formed and made by the imaginations of men. And so watch what Isaiah does. He unfolds, get this, step-by-step -step instructions on how idols are made. Not so that we can build one ourselves, but so that we can see how ridiculous idol worship really is. 
Look at verses 19 and 20. Beginning in verse 18, to whom shall you liken God? And what likeness shall you compare to him? Verse 19, an idol. He just blurts it out, an idol. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. Verse 20, this will be different than your version. Hang with me. The base of the altar or the pedestal for the offering. He, the worshiper, chooses a tree which will not rot. He selects for himself a skillful craftsman to stabilize the idol so that it will not wobble. I know my version is different. And I'll explain that, but you can at least see what Isaiah is doing here, right? He, he shows the, the process by which an idol is assembled. Can you see that? And I believe verse 19 is the idol. I believe verse 20 is the base or the pedestal upon which the idol sits. And you can see, you can see the steps here. Step one, verse 19. These are the Ikea instructions for how to make a false god. You ready? Here they are. Step one, verse 19, a craftsman has to cast it. He melts the metal down, pours it into a mold, which was also shaped by him. Step two, after the statue is made, it's then passed on to a goldsmith, an artisan, a, a craftsman in precious metals. And he takes the gold, and with his years of experience and, and expertise, he melts it down and shapes it on the statue in an aesthetically pleasing way to give it the appearance of something sacred and sublime, right? So now you have two people, two people in the mix now, collaborating together to make this false god, which raises the question, how many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many people does it take to make an idol? Well, step three, it seems there's now a third person in the mix. This time it's a silversmith, an expert in the work of silver. I think the grammar reveals, I know the English sort of alters this. They, they're working their, their best with this hard Hebrew grammar. I think the grammar, however, reveals that the silversmith is a different dude from the goldsmith. Is the third person. And here he adds the bling of the idol. He adds the ice, the decorative silver chains, the cosmetic accents intended to heighten the beauty of the deity because, of course, the idol is not beautiful in itself. It started off as something like a paperweight or a doorstop. It has to be shaped and made and beautified by the skill of someone more powerful than itself. God's value is infinite, intrinsic unchanging. And, and the worth of the idol increases over time through the process of manufacturing. Isn't that interesting? I mean, nothing about this is logical. And yet sin and idolatry never is, is it? Because Molech and Baal are not sitting on your shelves at home. However, there may be other kinds of idols lurking in our lives, just as ridiculous, just as preposterous, just as dangerous, just as bewitching, just as alluring to the soul. Because here's the thing you have to understand about idols. We mock idols, and we, we should. But you have to, the thing you have to understand about idols, listen carefully, is that the prevailing belief in that day, listen carefully, is that they were sacred objects through which the God they represented provided power and fortune, good luck and prosperity. You see, the idol was a surrogate, a good luck charm, a little elf on the shelf through which the deity transmitted his power to the worshiper to worship the action figure, 
was to worship the deity lounging around somewhere in the spirit world. It was magic. It was superstitious. It was ridiculous. It had no basis in reality, no, no basis. It was all myth and fantasy. And yet what power little gods and idols have upon the soul. As a kid, I loved action figures. He-Man was my favorite. I don't know if you remember He-Man. Kind of a steroided Viking with an eight-pack and a magical sword and a Speedo made of fur and matching boots, little harness. G.I. Joe, Transformers, Star Wars figurines, and, and, and we loved them, right? For, for us, they had, they had a magical power, did they not? They a magical power to pull us in, the power of imagination. You could play with them, and it was almost as if real until the action figure broke. And then all the power, the magical power that those figures had to, to feel real vanished in, in, in the blink of an eye. It vanished into nothing. The point is, reality is the greatest threat to idolatry. Reality is the greatest threat to idolatry. You can't have idols breaking on you because if, it, if they do, it ruins the charade, which is why verse 20, all of the He-Man stuff was lead up to verse 20. You need a decorative base for the idol. Every trophy needs a pedestal. The idol needs a pedestal to be displayed and to keep it stable. Look at verse 20. As for the base or the pedestal of the offering... He, the worshiper, chooses a tree which will not rot. He selects for himself a skillful craftsman so that the idol will not wobble. Now, I know your version says something like, he who is too impoverished for such an offering or something like that, uh, meaning that, and I think the point of that translation is, well, those who can't afford a metal god can afford a wood god, and here's how you make a wood god. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what he's doing because all of those words, he who is too impoverished, that's one word in Hebrew, just one. And it's way too complex and way too boring to explain and defend it in a sermon, but the bottom line is the root of that word is actually related to an ancient word meaning to set up, to display something. Hence, I think verse 20 is talking about the decorative wood base and platform and pedestal upon which the idol is made. Because again, every trophy needs a pedestal. Every god needs a pedestal, right? And, and so you, you look, you notice the, notice the process here. The worshiper's got to choose a good quality wood, right? You can't have something that rots. You can't have something that, that, that de decomposes, deteriorates over time. Second, you've got to hire now a fourth person, a fourth person, a craftsman to shave the, shape this thing into an aesthetically pleasing base. After all, this is the throne of the idol to accentuate its beauty, but it's not just beautiful, it's functional. Look at the end of verse 20. The woodworker has to shape this thing so that he-man can stand on top of it and not topple over, right? You can't have this thing rattling every time you bump the table or walk across the living room. And so you, you have to... You have to make this thing level and stable, and the entire scene is just preposterous. I mean, I mean, it's just ridiculous. These quadriplegic deities have to be created and carved and decorated and displayed only then to say and do nothing for the worshiper except, of course, destroy them. Psalm 115 says that those who make false gods will be like them, those who trust in them. 
you know, should understand, beloved, idolatry is an issue. Not just for statue-worshipping pagans afraid of curses and voodoo, but for every soul in every age because it is, as Calvin said, our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. You understand, beloved, idolatry is actually the definitive issue behind all of our sins. The definitive issue lurking in our lives Lurking in shadows that only God can see is that God is being exchanged. Don't you see the root of what sin is? All sin is taking something that's not God and loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And so, beloved, I close with this. This this raises the question. Where does the power to shatter idols come from? Where does the power come from? How do we win war over sin in our lives at the deepest possible level, at the heart level, at the worship level, at the manufacturing, idol-making level of the soul? How do we win? Isn't that the question you want? And the answer is this. To destroy idols in our lives, we need what I call, listen carefully, the idol eviscerating power of the supremacy of God. We need the idol eviscerating power of the supremacy of God. To eviscerate means, of course, to extract, to surgically remove. It even means to disembowel. Therefore, to disembowel the idols that fester in the soul, no matter what they are, is the repeated and traumatic encounter with the supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture. That's how you win. That's how you win. To see God in all of his glorious and limitless perfections. To see who God is in the white, hot holiness of his radiant being. Which is why this chapter exists. That's what you do to to kill the idols in the soul. You must eviscerate our idols, pull them up at the deepest possible root. This is what we mean when we talk about the glory of God. Hang with me here, hang with me. And church, as Christians, okay, what do we do with this? Well, Never, ever forget something so crucial, namely, that the glory of God came to earth, didn't he? Didn't he? This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talked about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Meaning, the glory of God is most prominently seen in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most spectacular display of the idol eviscerating supremacy and glory of God is found in the redemptive and kingly achievements of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Don't you see? Jesus Christ 
is Isaiah 40 in human and tangible form. Therefore, listen carefully, to truly stop the idol factory of the heart, you must sabotage your own soul with the sweetest meditations upon the supremacy of Christ. That's how you win. That's how you kill sin at its root. That's where true change is found. In other words, beloved, that is practical. So that's three. Three realms over which Yahweh is sovereign. Three more to come because the supremacy of the Most High God, you understand, beloved, is the proof, it is the guarantee, and it is the evidence that the future is secure. Let's pray. Lord, it is really hard to respond to that other than silence, other than a a moment of awe, even hopefully, Lord, a moment of of trembling, if not trembling, Lord, a, a deep, profound sense and awareness, that a greater sense and awareness that you are real, that you are worthy to be worshipped, and that you came down to earth as man and revealed your glory. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We want practical. We really want life change. We struggle with sin. Idols are, are, are everywhere in our hearts, and we need you. We need the idol eviscerating power of the supremacy of your son. Help us to see him and savor him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, and it's in his name that we pray.